Welcome to episode 223 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. Today I'm joined by uh, uh, our guest interviewee, David Sanger, the national security correspondent for the New York Times uh, and author of The Perfect Weapon War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age. We'll be interviewing him uh, uh, separately after we finish the news roundup. Uh, and then for the news roundup, we have uh, a great team. Pat Dertinger is a partner in our tax practice based in Phoenix who has followed state tax law for his career and who will be explaining the Wayfair decision. Uh, Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in our New York office, uh, uh, who has followed uh, uh, law enforcement access to location data for most of his career and we will be explaining the Carpenter case. Uh, Matthew Hyman, who was a visiting scholar at the National Security Institute at the George Mason University Antonin Scalia Law School. Uh, uh, previously a lawyer with the National Security Division at the Department of Justice. Matthew, welcome. Thank you. Uh, and Jim Lewis, uh, uh, who is uh, uh, the cybersecurity expert, uh, uh, really for the last 20 years, the go-to expert in Washington on cybersecurity issues uh, operating out of the Center for Strategic and International Studies here in Washington. And I'm your host, Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with NSA and DHS, and uh, 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 holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Um, this is Supreme Court week. They're finally getting around to releasing, because they have a deadline, uh, all of the hard decisions, uh, all the five to four decisions. Uh, we're going to talk about two of them. Uh, uh, this morning, I heard that they have the Supreme Court five to four upheld uh, President Trump's uh, um, uh, bans on travel into the United States. Uh, uh, not a particularly cyberish issue, but uh, if there are cyberish ele elements to it, we'll cover them next week. This week, we're going to talk about uh, Carpenter and Wayfair. Uh, uh, Michael, what did Carpenter decide, and is it a big deal? Uh, I think it's a very big deal. The, the court decided five to four in a decision uh, or opinion authored by uh, Chief Justice Roberts that the government needs a search warrant to get uh, seven days or more of uh, cell site location data from a cell provider. Uh, it left open a whole bunch of other questions, but it, essentially the court said that despite the fact that cell phone users voluntarily, or despite the, the fact that cell phone users um, can be said to uh, provide this cell site location data to the cell providers, they still have a reasonable expectation of privacy in their location information that, that um, is basically contained in that data, and so the government needs to get a warrant. But it left open a whole host of questions, uh, such as, does the government need a warrant to get real-time cell location information from cell phone providers? Does it need a warrant to get less than seven days of uh, historical cell site location information? Does it need a warrant to get other forms of information, such as credit card information or bank records that go beyond the fairly limited uh, set of bank records that were at issue in Miller? Uh, so I think there, there are a whole lot of questions that are going to be uh, percolating up through the courts now uh, in the aftermath 
of Carpenter. Yeah, I, and and Justice Roberts probably kept this decision so that he could this opinion so that he could write that. Um, uh, uh, long paragraph that said, now we're only deciding this narrow single question. It doesn't really tell you that the third party doctrine is dead. Uh, all we're telling you is seven days. That's too much. Uh, um, it, I, it feels to me, and I'm going to say this about Wayfair too, that basically the court has started uh, granting cert and writing opinions that open Pandora's box while they pretend that they've just um, uh, done something narrow, they're going to leave all of these problems for future uh, courts and the lower courts to try to figure out. And this one in particular, uh, everybody was clear on what the third-party doctrine was. If you trusted somebody else with your secrets, the government could subpoena them, by and large, unless there was a statute that changed that rule. Now the court is going to go in and say, well, how do we feel about this kind of secret being trusted to these kind of people and get, uh, obtained with a subpoena? Uh, they, they've got 50 cases ahead of them to try to um, uh, explain what Carpenter really means. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I think I don't think they were faking it when they said the decision was narrow uh, because it is narrowly confined to uh, cell site location data uh, of more than seven days um, worth of act activity. But the problem is it leaves so many uh, unanswered questions that um, the courts are going to have to wrestle with the implications. And I don't think it's going to be, you know, courts way in the future. I think starting today you're going to see uh, the gov if the government tries to get real-time cell location data with a 2703D order or a subpoena, mm -hmm. or they try to get uh, credit card records uh, with a, a subpoena, um, I think you're going to get challenges uh, when those, when if that evidence is turned over by the provider, uh, you're going to get challenges uh, from criminal defendants saying, "Wait a second, I've got a reasonable expectation of, of privacy because of, you know, the, the vast amount of uh, private information that's embedded in those records." I mean, think about credit card information. If, uh, I don't know why location information is would be sacrosanct. A credit card. Uh, you know, our, it contains records of everything that we purchase. Yeah, so uh, it, it, if I can... People increasingly it, don't use cash. So, yeah. I mean, you, you have your whole life, not just where you go, but everything you buy, everything you do is done with a credit card these days. Well, so here's the, here's the, the problem. For more or less... 30 years, the, the basic rule has been you gave the record to somebody else, you gave the information to somebody else, the government can subpoena it, and then Congress came along and pretty frequently said, well, we think there ought to be some limits on that. We're going to write some rules that say maybe not a warrant, but something more than a subpoena. Uh, certain kinds of information is going to be accessible with a subpoena or a national security letter. And, and they wrote elaborate rules, and they could make perfectly arbitrary rules, like six months uh, and suddenly it's available under a subpoena, whereas before it required a warrant, etc. Um, and, and all of those rules, you know, as a, as a way of responding to new technology, that was a pretty smart uh, mechanism. Now we're going to have these 70-year-old and 80-year-old uh, um, justices saying, well, I don't like this technology. This, is, this sucks. This is really so shocking. Uh, and imposing these requirements. And what's more, all of the carefully constructed uh, congressional compromises that were reached on this are now in doubt because the court has pulled out the big gun, uh, which is it's constitutionally required, which means that 
everything that's in the statutes that we've been relying on for uh, 30 years, like the Bank Secrecy Act, completely up for grabs. Well, you know, I don't think your complaint really lies with uh, 80-year-old justices. I think it really lies with a dead person named James Madison, because he wrote the Fourth Amendment, which is all about what's reasonable, what sort of searches are reasonable. Um, And that is a rather expansive concept. Uh, And, you know, it leaves it to courts over the course of history to determine what constitutes a reasonable search, what constitutes a reasonable expectation of privacy. And that, that is necessarily going to be elastic and it's going to evolve. Well, let me, let me, let me, let me cite let, that. Let, Even let me, the chief recognizes that. Let me cite the uh, another founding father on the question of a reasonable expectation of privacy. Uh, it was Ben Franklin who said, uh, three can keep a secret if two of them are dead. Uh, that's... That we, we all learned that in the third grade. We, if you give somebody your secrets, you, you're giving them the ability to expose your secrets. Uh, uh, that was good enough for Ben Franklin, good enough for me, and I think it was probably good enough for James Madison. All right, Wayfair. Uh, <laughs> let's, uh, uh, let's move to a slightly less contentious uh, uh, issue, but also one where the court more or less punted. Pat, what did, it say, what did they say? Well, what... The court in Wayfair, essentially what they did was to kick out the physical presence test, which has uh, been around for some 51 years, and uh, said that an economic uh, nexus test uh, you know, suffices for Commerce Clause purposes. Um, now, those of you who buy on the Internet, uh, like all of us do, you may have wondered why do some Internet retailers charge a sales tax and others don't? Well, it goes back to the National Bellis-Hess case and the Quill case, uh, both U.S. Supreme Court cases in which the Supreme Court laid out a Commerce Clause standard for remote uh, uh, vendors. Uh, <clears throat> the first cases, National Bellis Hess and uh, Quill, both dealt with mail order houses, uh, but uh, the uh, Commerce Clause implications of those cases had been applied quite nicely you know, over the recent years to Internet retailers. Well, the Supreme Court said that to not unduly burden interstate commerce, a state can impose a sales tax collection obligation on an out-of-state remote retailer only if that remote retailer has physical presence in that state. Well, what the Supremes did in the Wayfair case was to negate the physical presence test, said it was wrongly decided to begin with, we're kicking it out, it's no longer good law, and we are upholding a South Dakota piece of legislation that established what's called an economic nexus test. Economic nexus does not uh, 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 cover physical presence at all. What economic nexus does is essentially says, okay, if you're doing business in our state, uh, we're going to be able to tax you. The Wayfair Court held that nexus is established when the taxpayer avails itself of a substantial privilege of carrying on business in that jurisdiction. Quite a broad standard now. The South Dakota legislation, what it did, it said, okay, if you're making sales into our state totaling more than $100,000 for the last year, or if you're making individual sales into our state of at least 200 last year, then you're going to be required to collect the South Dakota sales tax on those sales going forward. So the... the, the I- 
you know, I was I was around for uh, well, I, I, I at least I remember Bellis Hess, and it was reconsidered 25 years later, and the court said, you know, it might be wrong in Quill, but it's been around for 25 years, and Cong- we're going to make it so Congress can fix it anytime it wants, uh, and uh, and why don't we just leave this to Congress so they can figure out how to decide when it's fair to impose this collection obligation on uh, merchants who may do a small amount of business in a wide variety of states. Uh, And for 25 years, Congress did nothing. Now, uh, basically, the court is saying it was wrong then, and we've just got, we've lost patience. We're going to say it's it's wrong, overrule it, and we're not going to resolve any of these questions about uh, whether it ought to be a hundred thousand or one hundred fifty thousand dollars, what are you going to do about local taxes, which could be varied? You could have a hundred different local taxes inside South Dakota uh, that people are ob- obligated to collect. So it's really kind of messy for small businesses that haven't been collecting this, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. And the Supreme Court in Wayfair essentially said, "Okay, we're going to leave those other questions to a future day." In a future case, we're not deciding them today. Yeah, we're writing you the know, check, Stuart, and somebody think, else will, call, will will cash it. Yeah, and uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, the check that I, I I personally would hope would be cashed one of these days and fairly soon would be by Congress. As you indicated, uh, you know, for the last twenty five years, Congress has done nothing. Will this now be the impetus for co- uh, Congress finally to do something? I would hope so, because uh, under the economic economic nexus test. You know, we're charting, we're in new territory. We're on a new map. Uh, we don't know what states are going to do. Are states going to get very aggressive? What if a state says, okay, you know, if you make one sale under the state, that's enough. Or, uh, you know, if you make $10, uh, you know, that's sufficient. Uh, uh, we don't know the answer to those questions as of yet. They're oh, I think I know the, the answer to that. New York, Illinois, California, those guys are broke. They're going to ask for every nickel that they can uh, squeeze out of uh, uh, taxpayers, is my guess. Uh, um, and... You know, right. I actually wrote about the Quill decision because I was uh, early to the uh, electronic commerce issue and was decided in 92. Um, and in 94, the uh, Republicans took over Congress. And I said, you know, the idea that a Republican Congress is going to uh, make it easier to collect taxes that they have no role in spending strikes me as uh, extraordinarily unlikely. And for 25 years, I was right. Uh, maybe they'll change their mind, but I'm not sure Congress is going to ride to the rescue here. Well, I'm not going to hold my breath. I hope they do, because uh, under an economic nexus standard, we're going to have economic nexus standards that are going to be different from state to state to state. It's going to be a checkerboard. And businesses, they want to comply, essentially. And they asked me, Pat, you know, how do I comply? I'm a startup mail order uh, internet business. You know, I'm going to be selling probably into 10 or 20 or 30 states to begin with, and hopefully all of them, uh, you know, in a couple of years. You know, how do I comply? Well, you know, the test was physical presence. Let's take a look. Where do you have physical presence? And those states, you are going to have to comply. But now you're going to have to take a look at that checkerboard and say, okay, do you have $50,000 here uh, because that's a standard in one state? You know, $100,000 is a standard in another state. Um, and Congress, I hope, again, I'm not holding my breath, I hope they will act to... Uh, put down a uniform um, uh, standard for sales tax collection that has to be followed by all 45 states that impose uh, a sales tax. Now, Stuart, one thing that I think is very significant, 
from the Wayfair case is what the Supreme Court did not do in Wayfair. While they said that nexus is established when the taxpayer avails itself of the substantial privilege of doing business in a destination state, it never laid out a commerce clause minimum standard that needs to be met under the economic nexus test. They left that, you know, for the future. Oh, it's going to be a festival, a festival of litigation over state uh, 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 taxation. Uh, uh, Pat, you might want to spell your name for the <laughs> listeners. Uh, that's D-E-R-D-E-N-G-E-R, uh, uh, because you're going to be the busiest man at Steptoe and Johnson. Well, I can't retire for a long time, can I, <laughs> No, you're stuck. You're stuck. Uh, okay. Um, uh, speaking of people who aren't uh, showing any signs of retiring, the North Koreans are hacking banks in Latin America and apparently launched massive cyber attacks, probably cyber espionage attacks, in Singapore during the uh, Trump-Kim summit. Uh, uh, Matt, uh, uh, Jim, any thoughts about the significance of this? Does this mean that uh, uh, there are limits to the thaw that uh, we're experiencing with North Korea? Yes. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, a fish has got to swim and a dog's got to bark and North Korea's got to hack. And I think that's why Singapore had 4.5 times the number of hacks as the U.S. and Canada during that same week. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a useful reminder for the Trump administration as they try and reach some sort of accord with North Korea on nuclear topics. I hope they don't follow the path of the Obama administration in terms of what they did with Iran, where they focused only on nuclear issues, because obviously these cyber issues are not going to go away. And I hope they're thinking about all the issues we have with North Korea, not just in particular the nuclear one. Jim? Um, you, you know, I do, do you really, it's bad for the North Koreans to hack into poorly protected banks, but it does serve kind of a useful function because it, it makes these banks kind of wake up and pay attention. If you look at their victims, they tend to be the lower, uh, lower end of the preparedness spectrum. So, so this, you're, this is whether, an argument from Darwin that you're making. Yeah, it's like, and so maybe if Kim's, plans to use the thought to revive the economy come to fruition, they won't need to hack for money anymore, but that'll be a long time in the future. So we're going to interview uh, uh, David Sanger about his new book. And in that book, he says the North Koreans, uh, one, should probably get the most improved player award uh, in cyber uh, uh, warfare. Uh, but he also says, you know, they've uh, since they don't have an internet to speak of inside North Korea, they've moved their hackers outside to places like India and Malaysia and <clears throat> Kenya and Poland, for God's sake. I mean, I, I can't help thinking that if that's where they're doing their hacking, we ought to be able to uh, do more than just um, uh, stop them from uh, breaking into systems. We ought to be able to bust them. Uh, what's, what's preventing that? Part of it is they, they don't rely on those places. I mean, they kind of mapped their their hacking onto their previously existing black market activity. So where before they did gun running or drug smuggling or counterfeiting, they just moved hackers there. Um, but they do have Internet connections in uh, in North Korea, and it's a fair question to say, if we know they're in Poland or if we if we know they're in one of these places, why don't we lean on the local authorities to squeeze them? And, you know, China, I understand. The Chinese would prefer to pretend that the North Koreans aren't there. Places like Malta, 
Uh, they don't want to lose their reputation as a haven for crime. Um, but other places, we might be able to we might be able to squeeze them a little bit. Yeah, I would think so. And Poland, for God's sake, that's a, a a Cold War ally that still thinks there's a Cold War on. Um, uh, all right. Uh, so lightning round. Uh, lots of quick stories. Uh, um, the Trump administration is considering. Massive new curbs on Chinese investment, uh, um, export control rules, uh, uh, on top of all the um, uh, tariff uh, uh, increases that it has planned. Um, We'll probably get to see more on that. We're just getting bits and pieces uh, emerging, rumors about what's coming. Um, The administration has said they're going to allow comment from U.S. industry on all of these rules. So uh, that's more or less something we can put on the shelf, uh, unless, Jim, you've got something to say about that one. No, it's just puzzling Mm -hmm. that with the the, uh, bill in the Senate moving along, the CFIUS reform bill, that the administration uh, feels the need to do this. Some people have speculated that it might be because if it's an administrative action, they have greater control over it and can use it as a chip. That, that implies a degree of, uh, of foresight we haven't seen before. But, you know, overall, it's a good idea to confront China. We'll have to see what the actual proposals look like before we can say whether they'll work or not. Okay. And surely they have exceptions for Kushner Properties and Ivanka Trump fashion lines. <laughs> all right. The Democratic National Committee weighs in on that one. Uh, uh, all right. Joshua Schulte. Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. All right. <laughs> I, I am not going to express a view on that one. Um, the guy who leaked massive amounts of very sensitive uh, uh, CIA hacking tools, Joshua Schulte. He's now been accused of that uh, uh, after having been arrested on child porn, uh, uh, has apparently released naturally through uh, uh, WikiLeaks uh, his notes from jail, which are every bit the narcissistic, self-absorbed, oh, poor me kind of stuff that you'd expect from somebody who has no idea how much damage he's done. Uh, you know, his, it, his diary starts, bang, 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 I awoke with a start, it's still dark outside, my phone reads 5.30 a.m., I jump up and reach for my apartment door and I see the door unlock, the door open, and 10 to 12 people in bulletproof vests and guns burst into my apartment. Oh, ho, 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 poor me. Uh, and and uh, to show you just how how sad his lack of perspective is. Uh, in his first paragraph, he says, somehow I doubt Paul Manafort or any wealthy individual suspected of a crime is treated this way, which, of course, uh, for those who followed that, uh, is completely wrong. That's exactly what happened to Paul Manafort. Uh, 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 the guy really, um, uh, uh, there's every reason to think that he's going to deserve everything he gets, and boy, I hope he gets a lot. Um, Chinese hackers are getting stealthier, Taiwan says. Uh, uh, Matt, uh, um, did you read that story? I did, and it only makes sense. And obviously Taiwan is an important uh, chess piece in China's ongoing efforts to create hegemony uh, throughout Southeast Asia. And so the fact that they are getting stealthier you know, makes perfect sense. It's the uh, Chinese improvement model, and I would expect to see um, stealthier hacking not just affect Taiwan, but other targets of uh, China's, um, you know, strategic game board. Well, Jim, there's there's some suggestions that the, the uh, Chinese have resumed stealing 
uh, commercial or quasi-commercial secrets, but that they are being more selective and more stealthy. So that would be consistent with the, uh, the Taiwanese experience. Yeah, I, we, we probably didn't. We knew that when we got the agreement on commercial espionage that the Chinese would, you know, be able to retarget their collection resources. And one of the things that led to the agreement was Xi's general discomfort with kind of the very diffuse and unmanaged uh, Chinese commercial espionage effort. So he's been trying as part of his larger reforms with the PLA to make these guys do their day job, and they've gotten better at it. So I don't think the, the, the nose count is that they're still abiding by the agreement, noting that there's wiggle room on, you know, commercial for commercial purposes. So uh, overall, they're better, um, but they seem to be playing by the rules. So the Justice Department's indictments are playing the same role for crappy Chinese military hackers that uh, North Korean uh, uh, hackers are playing for, playing for crappy bank security across uh, the third world. Very, you know, yeah, the, the, Chinese still complain, the Chinese still complain about the indictments. And I was there uh, two or three weeks ago where they brought up the indictments again. When are you going to list them? And, you know, I always tell them, Never. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, the we're going to be talking more to David Sanger about uh, this because the theme of his book is that we don't have a cyber strategy for for fighting in cyberspace um, and dealing with cyber attacks. Uh, um, but the Congress has com- come to that same conclusion and has called for a Project Solarium, which is a uh, well-known, well, not to me, but to, to, to uh, Cold Warriors, uh, a, a uh, Eisenhower-era um, effort to figure out what our nuclear strategy should be. Uh, they want one for our cyber strategy, uh, and uh, that's in the NDAA. It's, it's almost certainly going to pass. Uh, uh, Jim, thoughts on that? Um, I love uh, intellectual bankruptcy, and so we've got moonshots and Manhattan projects. Now we've got solarium. I mean, we should try and go back to the 19th century for analogies as well, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, this it's is like time. Hollywood, where they can't come up with a new movie. Uh, they have to do a remake of a remake. So solarium project, uh, you know, great idea for the 1950s. It is a different century. Maybe, maybe the Congress hasn't realized that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm I'm very partial to the uh, air war analogy, which I think is a lot more productive than a nuclear war uh, analogy. But that really only gets you back to about 1903, so it's not quite uh, a 19th century uh, uh, example. Uh, um, so, solarium yeah. really wasn't about nuclear strategy; it was about how to deal with Russia, how to contain them. So it was a well-defined problem where we had a lot of experience in thinking about how to do this coming out of the Second World War. The, the rules are very different for cyber conflict because we don't have that much experience. Um, we don't have that kind of background. So don't expect um, uh, a result that will be permanent. All right. Well, here's my, another question. I think you and Michael Lattice and I, at least, and probably Matthew as well, uh, uh, all have had our OPM files stolen by the Chinese. Uh, and now that 
files are starting to show up in the hands of criminals, uh, uh, and there were some arrests of, of people who were using it. No obvious connection to uh, the Chinese government, even though everybody believes it was the Chinese who pulled off the, uh, the hack. Uh, uh, does this mean that the Chinese have gone into a sort of North Korean mode of saying, well, why should we uh, just keep this when we can monetize it? Uh, or are they trying to cover their tracks by uh, turning it over to criminals so they can say, that wasn't us, that was some criminal? Oh, it's way too late for that last one. If yeah. they were going to do that, they should have done it within the first month. I, that's why I think it's more of a monetization effort. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, we've got this asset, why don't we sweat it? Right. I've got this thing, it's gold. Are, are, are we really sure that that, that uh, um, data came from the OPM hack? Apparently, I, I well, we, we, we know that they got it from the OPM files, that. or at least that's the, the suggestion, that, uh, uh, that the data was OPM data that was being used for ordinary credit card or, or credit fraud. Um, but, but, how do, but, but, but I mean, I'm, I'm not saying it was, it was or wasn't. I'm just wondering how we know that it came from the OPM hack. If somebody has your Social Security number or your address or your bank account information, you know, that may have been among, you know, some of that may have been among the OPM data, but it's also, it also resides lots of other places that could have been hacked. So I'm just curious how we know this from, you know, a couple of press reports. Yeah, and so all, all I know is what the press is reporting, which is that it was uh, data stolen from OPM. Fair enough. Uh, TBD uh, is my guess. Uh, also, TBD is the future of SPLC, the Southern Poverty Law Center, which you guys have heard me rant about uh, as the, the most irresponsible uh, 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 group in dealing with anti-discrimination issues and hate speech, uh, is now, has after settling one uh, uh, libel action is getting scrutinized by 60 other people that they smeared uh, uh, for libel actions. Couldn't really happen to a nicer group, but there's not much of a cyber law connection there, so I'll leave it at that. Um, Algeria shut down their uh, internet because students were using it to cheat. Everybody in Algeria basically had to stop operating on the internet because uh, they had an exam and they couldn't think of any other way to stop kids from trading information about the exam. Uh, um, I don't know what to say. It's, uh, uh, it seems like an overreaction. Especially when I think there are still blue books available to fill out your exam answers. So maybe yeah. we need to go back to handing out blue books. All right. And the administration is uh, apparently thinking seriously about coming up with some privacy principles that are meant to be a rival to GDPR, which the administration doesn't like because yeah. business doesn't like it and because yeah. it's a stupid uh, uh, regulation. Uh, um, we haven't heard much about this, Matt. No, it seems very embryonic. Uh, and it seems like a number of the industry participants that have been in these uh, administration talks don't really know where it's going. I think the practical problem is uh, in terms of any business that's uh, global in scope or even just trading with uh, European customers, the ship's already sailed because as a business matter, you're going to set up your your uh, data uh, management scheme to the most restrictive standard. That way you automatically comply with any lesser standards. So if the government, if the U.S. government thinks it's going to change that formula, I, I, I think they're trudging up a steep hill. Yeah, and look, the Obama administration 
had the same idea uh, and the same basic stance, which is GDPR might be okay, but it's a little too much, and why don't we do something that's uh, more reasonable? And it went nowhere. It was too much for business and wouldn't have solved the international problem. Right. Okay. All right. I think if we just say open and free 40 or 50,000 more times, uh, that will change the Europeans' mind. Open and free sesame. Yes, I think that's exactly the uh, that that's as, uh, as likely to be effective as anything else that uh, the U.S. government could do in this area. Too true. All right. Our interview this week is with David Sanger, and we're going to be talking uh, to him about his new book, The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age. Um, David, your book, The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age, uh, is in many respects a continuation of your earlier book, Confront and Conceal, and it's um, the history of cyber war over the last three or four years. Uh, um, What's the theme? So, uh, first, thanks for having me back on, Stuart. Uh, You keep writing the books, we'll keep putting you on. Uh, Well, okay, that seems like a reasonable deal. Uh, It takes longer to write the books than to talk about them for some odd reason, yeah. So, the last book, Confront and Conceal, was really a history of Obama's foreign policy during his first term, and it happened to be remembered for the revelations about his role in Olympic Games, which, of course, was the uh, attack on uh, Iran's nuclear program. But at the time that I wrote that book, and it came out six years ago uh, uh, this month, um, it was hard to find another sophisticated state-on-state cyber attack there were some, you know, denial of service attacks, so forth and so on, but nothing of a, you know, that you would sort of step back and say, oh, wow, that's impressive. Right. Okay. And now, in the six years that have come, there have been hundreds that we just know about. And then, of course, all the ones we don't know that about. we don't know about. Right. And this has gone from a capability that belonged to uh, the United States, Britain, Israel, Russia, China, to a lesser degree six years ago, Iran and and North Korea, to one that 30 or 40 states have uh, the ability to do somewhat sophisticated cyber operations, some more sophisticated than others. And suddenly, we have a U.S. government that has built up a significantly powerful U.S. cyber command, but can't really show you the strategy and the deterrence theory that runs behind it. Similar to the nuclear age, we did our weapons first and our strategy second. Okay? <laughs> yeah, but a lot less successfully. A like. lot less. Now, remember, and one of the things I went back to read before I sat down to write this book, um, I went back to read Henry Kissinger's uh, Nuclear Weapons and Foreign Policy, which was written in 1957, and it was the first real popular book that he had published. He had, had, had um, published his, his work about Metternich after graduating from Harvard, but I would not call it light reading. It's not, not good summer beach reading. It's interesting, but it's not summer beach reading. Nuclear Weapons and Foreign Policy, which came out 12 years after we dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, was an effort to say, hey, this has fundamentally changed the way we think about national security. This is more than just a new weapon. It's a weapon that changes the capabilities of different states. And we kind of knew it, but he articulated it. He articulated it, and then he laid out some theories, some of which he's, I think, come to rethink, 
or restate that included some arguments about why we could conduct limited nuclear war. But mm -hmm. it wouldn't probably stand up quite as well today. But nonetheless, it's a pretty remarkable work. And as I was reading it, I was thinking to myself, you know, where we are in the cyber age right now is we have a lot of people writing about how to protect yourself, how to protect your networks, how to do two-factor authentication, you know, writing about individual hacks, but no real explanation about what has changed geopolitically that is making this the perfect weapon. Mm -hmm. The perfect weapon for weak states that want to attack much bigger states. The perfect weapon for states that know they can't afford to get into a direct conflict with the United States, but need something that they can dial down or dial up. And I thought, you know, the years since Confront and Conceal, um, since Stuxnet gave states the excuse they were looking for to do what they were planned on doing anyway, mm -hmm. needed a book. So I, the, I, I, the theme as I saw it was, what is this strategy? I, mm -hmm. I, you know, look, it's a, it's a great book with lots of anecdotes, uh, and uh, it doesn't get hung up on strategy as a grand theory. Uh, but that is the thread that That's runs right. through Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Uh, that we, we, we need to figure out how we're going to address this. We have enormously powerful weapons in search of a guiding principle about how we're going to use them. And um, increasingly, when people talk about deterrence, which has always been a, a part of discussions since uh, that is more or less the nuclear uh, um, strategy, uh, it turns out that the nation that you can point to as having been deterred most in cyber attacks is the United States. That's right, because we are the most vulnerable. Our cybersecurity has certainly improved over the past few years, but the target space in the United States has expanded far more quickly than our cybersecurity has improved. So while we're getting better, we're becoming more vulnerable faster than we're getting better. Right. And that's because we've got internet-connected cars, and we have internet-connected security cameras on the outside of our houses that can be turned into uh, basically driving bots, right? And we have internet-connected refrigerators. For the life of me, I can't figure out why I want an internet-connected refrigerator, but go online, and there are a lot of them for sale. And you, and you're you're going to have trouble buying one that isn't. That's right. Uh, and every one of these comes with a different level of security, or no security at all. Uh, or the password is refrigerator. And um, so the difficulty that we've, we're facing now is that if we do something, the ability to escalate is so much greater. And this paralyzed President Obama more than once. So the Russia hack chapters begin, well, they begin in Ukraine in a chapter called Putin's Petri Dish mm -hmm. because every single thing the Russians did to us... They tried out first in Ukraine. They, absolutely. And, and if you were paying attention in Ukraine, you would have had the complete roadmap to the Russian strategy for the United States. But we did not imagine... That it that would, they would We didn't think it would work. We didn't, it would work. we didn't even think that they had the nerve to right. leap the Atlantic and do it here, right. even if they thought it might work. Um. Then, as you go into these chapters, we, I take you through the hacks that preceded the DNC, White House, State Department, Joint Chiefs of Staff. Mm -hmm. And what do they all have in common? That the Russians go into them, 
that the U.S. fights them off. There's fun stories in here about a two-week battle to get them out of the White House system. It's not that getting them out was that hard. They just kept coming back to prove that they could. Right. And that was really a difference in style between the old Russian uh, um, intelligence collection mode in which getting caught was the worst thing that could happen. And they realized as they kept uh, fighting to get back in that getting caught had no price at all. You know, the subtitle, as you said before, was War, Sabotage, and Fear. This wasn't an act of war. It was on its way to being an act of sabotage. But what it really was about was creating the fear that they could get into any of our systems. Mm -hmm. And fear is critical here because if you don't have confidence in the systems that run your daily life, then you change your behavior. So if you don't believe that when you pull the lever for whatever candidate you're voting for, that you are necessarily going to have your vote counted for that candidate. If you think that when you step into your autonomous car, it might take you to the supermarket where you intend to go, but it might take you off a cliff where you really don't intend to go, then it suddenly undercuts your confidence in all of the basic systems around you. And that's really what the Russians had in mind here. It wasn't to go win some huge victory in which they unplug everything from Boston to Washington. So uh, your, uh, the story of the Obama administration's response to the uh, Russian attacks is one of the more uh, uh, dramatic ones. Uh, and there's uh, one of the things that struck me about the uh, Obama administration's approach to this that undercut them further was the extent to which they thought that law would save them, that if they could make things a violation of international law, then they could object to them and they could, they could uh, stomp their fist and insist that it, it uh, end. Uh, and so they kept looking for things that violated international law. But one of the things that doesn't violate international law is breaking into somebody's system and stealing secrets. And Time and again, and you have a couple of quotes here, the president, uh, his intelligence uh, uh, officials say about things like the uh, uh, intrusion into the White House system or the DNC or uh, OPM hacks, uh, uh, well, it's espionage. We do it too. And then, they, and then they act as though having said that, there's nothing more they can do about it. That's right. And in some of the cases, it started as espionage but didn't end up as espionage. Right. Okay. So – Jim Clapper made exactly that argument, you know, about the OPM hack, the Chinese did, and basically said if we could have gotten into the system, we would have as well. I would argue that when you are collecting the vast amounts of data, far more than just uh, social security numbers and dates of birth and all that, uh, on 7% of the U.S. population, the elite 7% that have security clearances, I'm sure your stuff is sitting off in I'm Beijing sure right now. Right? <laughs> I'm increasingly afraid it's being used for uh, uh, credit uh, fraud well, tax, too. Well, that's <laughs> the interesting thing. Nothing that was stolen from OPM until has this ever week. shown up until this week. And we actually don't think that that was out of the Chinese part of the hack. Oh, uh, okay. okay. We somebody actually, else did We that. think some, it, it may have been out of the investigation into it and, okay. and some of the others. Okay. But almost nothing from the Chinese part of the hack has shown up on the dark web, right, right. At, for sale. And, of course, how did the U.S. government respond to losing the 
uh, data on 7% of the U.S. Oh, I know. I, I, I got credit monitoring for you a year. free credit <laughs> monitoring for a year. Well, thank you very much for something that actually didn't address the question. And did the U.S. government ever step out and say it was the Chinese? Only once when Jim Clapper made a mistake and was sort of forced to, to back off from it. Okay. Right. But um, the fact of the matter is that I think that was more than just espionage. Because at that moment, you are building a giant database that you are then applying big data properties to, probably combining with what they stole from Anthem and all the other insurers, to get a picture of who worked on what and then begin to use it for all kinds of other purposes. So it's right in that gray area between espionage and active measures. Similarly, for the Russia hack, the initial thinking was, well... They were going into the White House, the State Department. We don't need to name them because it's just espionage. Well, what lesson did Vladimir Putin emerge from that with? Well, these guys aren't going to name us and penalize us for going into the White House and into the Joint Chiefs of Staff and into the State Department. Who's going to care about the DNC, which is basically staffed by a bunch of college kids yeah. and you know, constantly broke? Yeah. So... Um, I think the lesson Putin emerged from was there's no price to pay. Let's go for it. Yeah, and and it turned out there wasn't. I, um, yeah, it's a uh, really the right answer is not is this a violation of international law? That's why you can't do it to us. The, if I can indulge my inner Trump, uh, maybe not so inner. Uh, it's because we're the United States of goddamn America. You don't do that to us because we will make you pay if you do. That's the right answer. And unfortunately, we would had no way to make them pay or didn't think we did. Uh, uh, and that was the other disincentive. They they could think of a hundred things that Vladimir Putin could do uh, in response to the many things that we could have done to make right. him pay a price. So the deep fear in the White House at the time was that Putin would come back on Election Day and play into the Trump meme that uh, someone was rigging the election. And since it was clear to everybody in the Obama White House that Hillary Clinton was going to win, why play to that theme when you could punish the Russians after Election Day and then hand the plan for punishing them further over to Hillary, right. who would well, then continue it. We'll give this to the Goldwater girl and she'll uh, uh, treat Putin the way he deserves. That's right. So in the end, uh, turned out things didn't work that way. And uh, so they rushed to try to come up with some sanctions against Putin that they enacted in the last days of the Obama presidency, and I quote one of Obama's aides in here, after they threw out the 35 Russian spies who were allegedly diplomats and closed down two facilities, including one in which the Russians were digging underground to get into our under, underground cables, um, one of these officials said to me, it was the perfect 19th century response to a 21st century problem. Well, uh, usually we're, we're within 100 years yeah, of uh, yeah. uh, the so response. It, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, and um, the response to some of this stuff, uh, the president said, well, you can't go into uh, intermediate countries' um, computers to strike at Russia because that might violate international law. We have to get permission from every right. country that has a computer that might be a good way to uh, uh, get to the Russians. So this came up with came up in two distinct cases. One was the failed effort to go after ISIS, 
where a lot of the stuff was stored in places like Germany, and the concern was, did we need to tell the Germans we were coming through the system? And the president decided, yes, you needed to. The other was going after North Korea in response to the Sony hack, uh-huh. where you can't get into the North Korean networks unless you go through China, because that's where all the all the, all of the connections come out. And there they got the Chinese to actually cooperate in shutting the North Koreans down for a couple of days. But, I mean, big deal. So that was a, yeah, I, if the Chinese are letting them operate on their territory, they really should not be surprised if we go onto their territory to respond. Uh, this, is, this is what so, we said to Pakistan so when we were going. I, into I was about to say that, that was, the, the analogy here is, um, is counterterrorism. And I don't remember that U.S. Special Forces asked for a permission slip from the Pakistani military. So let's talk about China, um, because they're all through this book as well. And the thing that, you know, surprised me, one of the, there are lots of tidbits in here that I'd never seen before. Um, the stuff that Snowden disclosed about U.S. Uh, uh, activities in or relating to China got no press probably because there was no way to make them a scandal that I, but, uh, in the United States. But they got enormous coverage or at least really shook the Chinese when they discovered, for example, that the, the U.S. government had data centers in China that it was using to serve malware. Uh, that it, uh, we got into Huawei. I mean, all this time, the U.S. government has been warning everybody not to buy Huawei equipment. And the NSA was deep inside Huawei to figure out how Huawei equipment worked and who ran Huawei. Yeah. Uh, well, I, the thing that I was astonished by, the Chinese have mobile uh, nuclear missiles that they yeah. uh, uh, shuttle around the country in order to keep us from uh, taking them out in a strike. Uh, uh, and the people who are shuttling them around all have cell phones. Uh, and apparently we were keeping track of their missiles by keeping track of their cell phones. You know what it's a little bit like? Do you remember about a year ago, there was this great uh, maybe even less than a year ago, the heat map that came out from Fitbit. Yes, right. Right, where you could see everybody's, all you know, the, all the running tracks. All the running on, tracks. All, all the, the unacknowledged bases. In right. The- so so we were just trying an experiment with the, with the, with the map, and we found people jogging around the perimeter in Turkey out at the Inslick Air Base where we keep our unacknowledged nuclear weapons stores in Turkey. Se- separate Separate broadcast for a separate time. Why are we keeping nuclear weapons in Turkey under current conditions? But we'll set that aside. You know, so this was this has become a, you know, a great method for understanding military operations because everybody's carrying their own electronic digital dust with them. I mean, I you, you do it does actually. Uh, well, doesn't make me rethink Snowden because I have a view of Snowden, but it ought to make a uh, reasonable person rethink their view of Snowden that he would release that kind of information. I don't think he knew. I, you know, the thing about Snowden was he didn't go through most yeah, of he this just, data. He just he sort of he up. sort of handed it out and said, "You journalists make up your mind about what's newsworthy here or not." I don't think that he had the slightest knowledge of so we can ninety percent Glenn Greenwald's sense of uh, patriotism and Laura Poitras and yeah. you know many others who had uh, control over it. Uh, but uh, the fact of the matter is, there was a lot in there. Now I do have to say the Huawei story 
we ran on the front page of the New York I Times. I remember that. But, uh, but by and large, most media was so focused on, understandably, the privacy aspect of the Snowden thing that what I thought was really revealing about the Snowden trove, which was what it told you about our offensive capabilities, was largely lost. Yeah, well, because people didn't want to turn him from a hero into a more ambiguous uh, no, He figure. was ambiguous. He was, for sure. Uh, so uh, toward the end of the book, you – talk a little bit about China's um, Silicon Valley strategy mm -hmm. and the extent to which the Pentagon is uh, mm -hmm. discovering that China's ahead of it in uh, wooing Silicon Valley and uh, 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 gaining uh, access to new technologies that will change uh, military planning. Um, and you kind of provide the intellectual heritage or origins of all the stuff that we're seeing now with respect to changing the rules on CFIUS and the intellectual property rules. Uh, a lot grew out of the Pentagon's discovery under Ash Carter that uh, the Chinese were eating our lunch in Silicon Valley. Right. So um, Ash set up, Ash Carter, the defense secretary, set up a um, unit called DIUX, and that wonderful uh, Pentagon ease. It's uh, Defense Industrial Unit Experimental. And the first thing to know about them was they looked around and they couldn't afford the rent in Silicon Valley. <laughs> of course not. Right? Yes. Of course not. So they found an old, like, disused um, Air National Guard unit, I think, it was a building that's just outside Moffett Air Force Base. Oh, it wasn't sure. inside the right. gate. But they could get it for cheap. They, they, the rent was cheap, okay? <laughs> and what cracked me up the first time I went to go visit it was that as you drive in, I'm looking up at this building and saying, I've been in this building next door. What is it? It's a Google building. And I realized it was the building where Google had set up its anti-NSA unit after the Snowden um, uh, disclosures and had the team, which is described in the book, who were working on sealing up Google systems so the NSA could no longer get in between its servers and so forth. So the distance between that and the DIUX thing was maybe 200 feet window to window. <laughs> okay. So a little okay. laser listening device would really we, 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 uh, yeah. plug that gap. <laughs> so they were working on all kinds of interesting technologies. It was a very good initiative to say, look, there are a lot of technologies that are already built for commercial purposes that we could just adopt for the military and do cheaply. One of them, which Bill Broad and I wrote about, was putting up inexpensive um, synthetic uh, aperture radar over North Korea so that you could see the, the missile movements and so forth. But this there are a lot of other little mini sats. Mini sats that are right now used to count cars over uh, uh, you know Sears parking lots to try to figure out how long it's going to take Sears to go out of business. Right? I'm, I, I'm on the advisory board of a company that's doing something like that and it's dirt cheap. It is. Things. And of course the big satellite makers who are selling satellites for $5 billion a piece to the Pentagon are less than enthused about the development of this technology. But, you know, they're so predictable. I remember the uh, the North Koreans one time um, when they knew the satellite that was watching them was overhead, the went out and, 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 and did a formation, a military formation with their troops that spelled out a rude uh, um, uh, greeting to the Americans. You know, those North Koreans, yeah. we're going to miss them one day. So. <laughs> I would look forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but at the uh, end of the Obama administration, DIUX commissioned a study of Chinese activity. And it was initially classified. It's now declassified. You can find it on the DIUX website. And 
it was remarkable because the Chinese had looked at, for example, our CFIUS regulations, the Committee for Foreign Investment in the United States, and concluded that you really only have to report when you've invested in more than 50% of a company. And they're thinking, who wants to invest in 50% of a company? So they started up venture capital firms in Silicon Valley with perfectly American-sounding names. And sooner or later, uh, all of these companies that needed funding were putting their business proposals right through them, which was 90% of what they needed to go see. And sometimes they took a 10 or 20% stake in the company, a new company, which didn't require CFIUS reporting. Right. As a, t as a technical matter under CFIUS, if you're over 10%, you, you, you run the risk if you don't file. Uh, so if you got 40%, CFIUS would always consider that control. And uh, now with the Chinese, 10% is, uh, you know, if you go over 10%, they're going to find control. But it, for sure, there's a, there was a there, there was a real There was a real sort of below-the-radar operation right. here. And, and frankly... We're not in a position where we want to cut off all foreign venture capital coming into the United States, whether it's Chinese, European, Japanese, uh -huh. or anything else. So, um, but it was just a fascinating, very detailed strategy. They had figured out how to game the system to their great advantage. So, I, I, I'll, I'll chide you for one passage in your book where only one. Oh, I have, no, I've got others, but uh, <laughs> only one on the air uh, because. After all this, uh, Senator Cornyn uh, uh, begins work on CFIUS reform, and the Trump administration comes in and gives his effort a giant bear hug, said, well, this is what we want, uh, and does a lot of things in parallel to, uh, uh, to that. Uh, and instead of saying, as you've said about DAUX, you have a very thoughtful, careful, uh, important topic, you say, uh, this was an excuse for protectionism for the Trump administration. I, I think you ought to give the, the Trump administration credit. Uh, uh, sometimes they're going to find an acorn. No, I think that they do deserve some credit, and this had begun in Congress before them. And the Obama administration started this this down the road, they realized CFIUS needed uh, to be done. What worries me about the Trump administration is not actually their CFIUS reform. I actually think that's fine. What worries me is their loss of focus on every other cyber issue that I've put in here. What happened after John Bolton came in as the National Security Advisor? He got rid of the Homeland Security Advisor, who had a significant uh -huh. cyber Tom background, Bossert. Tom Bossert. Well, it's fine. He gets to Choose these, although I think what bothered him about Bossard was that he had direct access to the president. And mm -hmm. I never, I haven't run into anybody yet who said Bossard was doing a bad job. Right. I, right. I think we're now hearing the next, you know, hints of the next book, right? Because none of this is in the book. No, no, well, actually, the Bossard thing is at the very okay. end because it happened just as the book was closing. Um, and then he got rid of uh, the man who was the uh, cyber Joyce. coordinator, Rob. John, Rob Joyce, who had run the TAO, the Tailored Access so Operations So he really unit. knew these issues. If you're going to build defenses, the first thing you want to do is hire somebody who has been spending their life doing offense, right? right? Mm -hmm. He went back to the NSA, and then they eliminated that position. I know. And the answer they gave me was, well, cyber is part of everything, so we don't really need one. And I said, well, you think we're over-coordinated in the U.S. government on cyber right now? <laughs> I didn't get an answer to that. <laughs> so cyber command is another issue that uh, came up with the, uh, uh, in the Obama administration, was created in the Obama administration, is continuing into uh, the Trump administration. And you're pretty hard on them, and I'm not going to say unfairly hard, but uh, uh, the impression that comes out of the book is that uh, they're a little hapless, that they uh, 
don't have tools that really are highly effective when they launch them, they're more likely to uh, wipe out uh, valuable sources of intelligence than to achieve a long-term military effect. Uh, uh, what's your overall impression about uh, uh, Cyber Command and sure. what do we need to do to fix it? Well, first of all, it's got a very good, very talented person running it now in General Paul Nakasone. You'll read about him in the book and a little bit of his history. And he oversaw Nitro Zeus, which was a classified program to basically unplug uh, Iran if Iran got into uh, a big conflict with the U.S. And that was that got they were able to put that on the back shelf after the 2015 uh, nuclear agreement. Now, I hear that agreements run into a few issues, <laughs> so I don't know if they're dusting it back off. Um, but Nakasone knows what he's doing, and he understands, he ran Army Cyber, he understands the problems that come from Cyber Command's over-dependency on the talent inside the NSA. And they've basically got to decide whether that is a continuing problem or whether they're going to sort of live with it and, uh, and try to figure out how to integrate these two, even though one's a military and one's largely an intelligence unit. Building a repetitive capability inside Cyber Command that just replicates what's in NSA doesn't sound to me like an effective way to use the taxpayers' money. Well, you've got to, you know, if you're going to do espionage, you've got to get in first. If yeah. you're going to do an attack, you've got to get in, in first. first. So the getting in stuff ought to be the same. Uh, right. It's what you do when you're in, uh, and in many cases, yes, then you'll need, you know, if you're going to wipe, if you're going to brick everybody's machine, then you need a different tool from stealing all the secrets. That's right. And you're going to have this constant conflict between whether it's more valuable from a national security perspective to stay inside and watch what your adversary is doing or reveal yourself by shutting him down. So I, I speaking of that, toward the end of the book, you... Uh, write about the North Korean missile program uh, that had an 88% failure rate, uh, and you almost but don't quite say that the U.S. government caused that with a cyber attack. Uh, do you think that uh, the U.S. government uh, had a uh, cyber program that succeeded? Yeah. So. We certainly had a cyber program, and I say in the book outright, President Obama accelerated this program in orders that he issued in January of 2014, and it was aimed at the Musadon missile program, and that's the one that had the 88% failure rate. The problem that they ran into at the Pentagon, the NSA, every place else, was proving that any individual failure in those tests was because of our cyber attacks, because... It could have been because of bad parts, some of right. which we were sending in. It could have been because of bad engineering. It could have been because of an insider in North Korea who was undermining things. It could have been because somebody made a plain old mistake. We've blown up plenty of missiles. Although I think, you know, the test that, that proves that we did have a program on that basis is the fact that when he went to a different missile that we didn't know about, apparently, uh, he had yeah, 88% success, success rate, rate. That's uh, right. which is why you know, we ended up uh, feeling the need to uh, lean on him and talk to him. So I certainly came out of this believing that some of that 88% was because of our cyber program. Could I tell you what percentage it was? I can't. And I'm not sure even the people who did the program can with any certainty give you those numbers. But boy, if, if the North Koreans, who are enormously paranoid uh, and believe in air gaps and uh, anything you could do to keep you at the U.S. government from affecting their missile program, and the 
Iranians, who also were into air gaps and did everything they could to keep us from their enrichment program, couldn't keep us out of their systems, their essential national security systems. What does that say about the security of our missile launch systems? Well, and what does it say about the precedent we have set by going in to use cyber against command and control and similar systems? Well, that is so Obama administration to say, oh, well, if we do it, others will do it. If we don't do it, others others will do it. Others will do it as well. Right. But it does make it hard to create a norm that walls this off. And one thing I hear from people is... But who's going to be enforcing the norm if our nuclear missiles don't fire? I mean, you know, that, it, It'll it, be a very brief enforcement period, <laughs> I agree. Uh, so um, the, this is sort of where the book ends. Everybody loves to talk about setting norms in, the, in, in this area. And then you ask the question, well, why hasn't this happened? Why don't we have our Geneva Convention already? And the answer to that is a lot of things we don't want to see foreigners do to us, we don't want to lose the ability to do to them. So if we were to set some norms, let's say you and I sort of, you know, went downstairs uh, after, because we'd only do this after hours, Stuart, and bought a beer and made a list of things that we thought should be walled off. So we'd say election systems, okay, check. Mm -hmm. Hospitals, check. Emergency service responders, check. We got that. And I'm sure you and I could come up with a half dozen more. And then you turn the... um, uh, this list over to your old colleagues in the intelligence community and said, we're going to go out and negotiate this set of norms. You guys got any problem? I think there'd be a phone call coming back and say, Stuart, you know, this election system thing, I realize Russians, our election was, yeah, it was ugly. Do we really want to give that up? Because remember, we did it in Italy in the 40s and Latin America in the 50s and 60s and Iran in the 50s. How we ran a coup in Iran, right? Um, and Kermit not, Roosevelt, right? Right. <laughs> uh, and I'm not really grandson of. Um, I'm not really sure we necessarily want to give this up. Um, so if we're, not, if we're not going to give it up, right. then we have got to live with the consequence of being attacked. We have to be prepared to accept the consequences of escalation. So when was the last politician you heard who said, my fellow Americans, I realize you're all very unhappy because you realize that your credit cards are getting stolen and you're the collateral damage in this war between states going on at 30,000 feet. And I'd love to stop it for you. But frankly, I'd rather keep the option open to be able to do this to other countries. So just live with it. So uh, there, there's a substantial Jacksonian element in the United States uh, who would be delighted if you said, uh, those sons of bitches are stealing your credit cards and interfering with uh, our elections, and we're going to do it to them only twice as hard and make them pay. And that means we're going to suffer ourselves because those sons of bitches are going to fight back. Uh, but we will win. Let's go kick some butt. Uh, I, I don't know if that's a winning uh, argument, uh, but... Uh, what, it's, did, what did it's Barack Obama used early. to say? He used to say that the problem with the Internet is it's the wild, wild west, where you would make it wilder and wilder. I mean, that is the Internet equivalent of let's arm teachers. 
you know. Yes, I think it probably is, but I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure we have the same view of that. Uh, all right, uh, David, this has been a fascinating conversation. There's so much more in the book that we didn't get to talk about. I'm really sorry that uh, we missed it, but uh, I, if you follow this area, this is required reading uh, uh, to catch up on uh, uh, all the anecdotes you left out of your uh, New York Times articles, uh, plus some new reporting. Uh, uh, so my thank. Oh, David, do you have any uh, events coming up? Are you going to be doing any readings? So, um, you know, most book tours are done on podcasts yes. like yours or on TV or radio. But uh, on uh, this Thursday uh, evening, the 28th, I'm going to be at Politics and Prose here oh, in Washington, yeah. D.C. And uh, uh, we're, we should have a lot of fun there. And it's a good place for the Washington community to come back and talk. And uh, I'll, I'm sure I'll have some more as the school year starts up. And well, and I'm sure nobody at Politics and Prose will criticize you uh, for the things I criticized you for. <laughs> I'm sure that we'll find a few. <laughs> All right. Thanks to David Sanger. Right, uh, the author of The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age. Uh, uh, also to Pat Dertinger, to Michael Vadis, to Matthew Hyman for joining me on the News Roundup. Thanks to Jim Lewis, who showed up with little uh, advance uh, publicity. Uh, he also joined us in the uh, News Roundup. This has been Episode 223 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, uh, send us uh, your suggestions for additional speakers at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, if uh, we get that person on the show, we'll send you a highly coveted Cyber Law Podcast mug. Uh, 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 David, of course, has an entire uh, six uh, uh, set uh, serving set uh, of uh, podcast mugs. Uh, uh, and if you want to give us uh, a call and hear your voice, uh, your uh, message has got to be entertaining. It can be abusive, but it's got to be entertainingly abusive. Uh, uh, call us and leave a message on 202-862-5785. Rate the show on Google Play or iTunes so that uh, we'll get more listeners who can find out about us. Uh, we've got upcoming guest interviews. Matt Waxman and Duncan Hollis are going to be talking about their latest paper about cyber war. Mike Hayden uh, uh, is going to... Uh, uh, talk about his new book uh, about intelligence and the Trump administration. Uh, Woody Hartzog of Northeastern University, uh, who's written a book on privacy by design, uh, uh, is also going to be on. Bob Ch Bobby Chesney and Danielle Citrone are going to talk about deep fakes. For those of you who only come to uh, the Cyber Lab podcast for the sex, that'll be a great one because uh, deep fakes is mostly about uh, uh, putting other famous people's faces on porn actors uh, in a persuasive way. We're going to have Noah Phillips, the FTC commissioner, uh, and I think we're doing all that before we go on our August break. Uh, we've also got our request back in for rescheduling uh, with Kirsten Nielsen, uh, who uh, uh, is having trouble getting a meal in this town, uh, but we promise we will serve her uh, uh, a meal if she comes. Uh, uh, finally, show credits. Uh, Lori Paul and Christy Jorge are the producers. Doug Pickett is our audio engineer. Michael Beaver is our intern. And I'm Stuart Baker, your host. Uh, we hope you'll join us in the next episode and all of those uh, upcoming interviews as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. <laughs>